Hey, welcome to the podcast for Scotts Hill Baptist Church. We're in a series called One, where we are using Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 7, to guide us through a better understanding of biblical unity in the body of Christ. We hope these messages help you discern what is true, what is right, and what is good. We pray it is an encouragement for you today. Enjoy the message. Well, good morning and welcome to Scotts Hill. We're so glad that all of you are here this morning. Those of you who are watching us online, we're glad that you're able to join us. And those in the Cross Point Center, we're so grateful to have you there as well. And for some of you who are guests with us this morning, I think we got some folks from uh, App State uh, up there in the balcony. It's great to have you guys from App State. Yeah, Jim's second number, uh, his number two football team next to Alabama Crimson Tide. So, uh, although I am wearing a crimson shirt this morning, uh, let, me, let me just start this whole thing over, okay? Good morning. Welcome to Scotts Hill Baptist Church. So glad that you're here this morning. Um, this has been quite, quite a year, hasn't it? It's been an incredibly difficult year. Matter of fact, 2020 has been a hard year for most everyone in this room. When we go back and think about how the year began, we can see that it began with a lot of division in our country from the very beginning. We begin with the, the impeachment trials of a president, which further divided our country politically. And then it moves from there to the COVID-19 pandemic. We'd never heard of COVID before until 2020. We never paid attention to terms such as social distancing, uh, mitigation, things like uh, herd immunity like we ever heard before. And that even divided us as a country. People have argued about where do they fall on this continuum with wearing a mask or not wearing a mask, Um, being socially distant, not being socially distant. Should we have gatherings? Should we not have gatherings? And so people were further divided on all of that. Then unfortunately in May, we saw the, the unjust treatment of a man, George Floyd, who was murdered actually before the eyes of all the world. And we saw that people were really upset through that. And then there were protests that came out of that. But unfortunately, the protests devolved into rioting and looting. And a number of special interest groups began to argue and and to rise up and take opportunities in the midst of all of that. And then we saw that that our country was further divided with that. And emotionally, we were beginning to get tired at that point. But then this presidential election comes along. And there's one barrage after another of ads where they're attacking one another, their, their character, tearing each other down, asking about the effectiveness of one another, and ad after ad after ad. And then we had a Supreme Court justice who died. And then there's a replacement of her just before the election. Are you, are you having crisis fatigue yet? <laughs> because we have walked all through this. And then we just went through this incredible week of, of, of this election. And still there's division, there's disunity, there's all kind of difficulties that we have gone through. This year has been one event after another. In fact, I was talking to somebody the other day. I said, if you could take 2020... And you can make it a mixed drink. This is what it would be. It would be the preparatory drink before a colonoscopy. (laughs) For those of you who have never had a colonoscopy, just wait. (laughs) I mean, because you know what? It seemed to have brought out the worst in us as a nation, as a culture. And what we see is our nation is further divided probably now than any other point of a time that we have ever experienced. And as we're walking through all of these arguments and these fights and these divisions, 
it has not stayed away from how the church has responded to one another. Because the church itself, the body of Christ, has been divided in all kinds of ways. And we, too, have bought into all of the philosophies of the world. We've gotten involved in all the same arguments. And what we have done is we've seemed to be distinctively disunified. Now, I'm not talking about just the invisible church, okay? I'm talking about the body of Christ at large. I'm talking about individual congregations. I'm talking about churches with people who have faces and names and positions and opinions. People who get on the internet and they write vicious things about one another because they disagree with one another. What I see the need for our body is this. I think we need a recalibration. I think the body of Christ in America needs a recalibration. I love that word recalibrate because when you and I use um, any kind of GPS systems, our map systems, if you ever get off course, it always recalibrates, doesn't it? It tells you recalibrating and what does it do? It moves you back on track to where you need to be. And I think that in the midst of all of this year, the body of Christ has become confused. I think the body of Christ at large has gotten off track. And I think the Holy Spirit of God is wanting to call us to a place of recalibration where he wants to remind us of who we are. What makes us so different? What is the mission that he has for us? And how as we, as we as believers should live among one another and we should live in the world. So we're starting a series today called One. And this series is to refocus on the things that we have in common. And I think in a, as a body of Christ, we've become so distracted by so many different things that we've forgotten the things that unite us. But instead, we spend our time arguing over the things that are different, but really don't make a lot of difference in our eternities. Some of them do. But not all of them do. And so what we want to do is for the next three weeks, we want to look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. And in these seven verses, we're going to look at three things that unite us. Okay? Next week, we're going to look at the thing that unites us, that we have a common conduct. Next week, we're going to look at verses 3 and following. And we want to look at what God's Word says, how we should conduct ourselves in the world. Now, this conduct is not something that's prescriptive. It's something that's descriptive. Paul is not giving a list of things. You do these things and you'll be a Christian. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying because you're a Christian, you should be doing these things. It's not prescriptive. It's descriptive. And next week, Ryan Lambert is going to preach a message on our common conduct. Now, Ryan has been serving as our children's director in our children's ministry area, but the elders have met with him and have recommended that we call Ryan as an assistant pastor to the children's ministry. And so next week will be his trial sermon, so to speak. He's going to stand before you. He's going to preach, and you're going to have the opportunity to assess his abilities in communicating God's Word. And then the following Sunday, we're going to vote on calling Ryan as the assistant pastor to children's ministry. But next week, he's going to speak about there's a common conduct that we should live by. And then 
two weeks, we're going to speak about a common community. We're going to wrap the series up about what is our common community? How should we live as a people of God? But today, I want to begin where we need to begin. And we're going to begin with a common calling. We all have a common calling. And this calling unites us together. Now, let me say something on the outset. I am not preaching to the culture out there. Okay, I'm not preaching to the culture. I'm not preaching to America. I am preaching to the body of Christ. I'm preaching to those who name Jesus as Lord and Savior. I'm preaching to those who have a relationship with Jesus Christ and have, have uh, been born again into the family of God. That's who I'm preaching to. And so for the next several days and weeks, what you're going to find, these messages specifically dealing with those of us who are part of the church. And we want to look at what we are to do to be one, and how do we understand living together as one? Because here's something really important. If you and I do not live as one in here, we will never live as one outside of the body of Christ. And if you want to impact the culture, if you want to impact your job, if you want to impact your school, it begins with us walking together in one heartbeat, in one passion, in one love, in one salvation. So in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, take your Bibles, your devices, open there. I'm going to pray for us. Father, thank you that we can trust you for all things. And this morning, Father, as we look at the things that unite us in our calling, I pray, Father, that you would encourage our hearts, you would illuminate our hearts. Father, you would challenge our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 4, verse 1 of Ephesians, verses 1 through 7. The Apostle Paul is writing and he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, like we saw this morning. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, as we look at this issue of unity... In the body of Christ, we have to look at what unity is not, okay? So let me just kind of set the ground here. Unity, number one, is not uniformity. Unity is not uniformity. Uniformity says we all look alike. We don't all look alike. In fact, turn to the person next to you and say, I'm glad I don't look like you. <laughs> okay. Some of you might say, well, amen to that. <laughs> so unity is not uniformity. We don't all look alike. But secondly, unity is not unanimity. Unanimity says we all think alike. We don't all think alike. We are different in our thought processes. By the way, uniformity and unanimity are two key factors in socialism. Because everybody is to look alike and think alike and act alike. But true unity isn't us thinking alike and acting alike. True unity is harmony in the midst of our differences. God loves diversity. 
So what is a good working definition of biblical unity? Here's what I came up with this week. Biblical unity is a supernatural act of the Father grounded in the work of Jesus on the cross by which the Holy Spirit works to make all believers one. The entire Trinity is involved in the unity of the body of Christ. It is supernatural. It is something that God brings about. It's not something that we can orchestrate within ourselves. It is the Father who brings about the unity through the death and the resurrection of his Son, Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit is the one who, who brings that unity, and we maintain the unity. So this unity is something that is supernatural, and is something that every child of God should have. So in verse 1, the Apostle Paul talks about our common calling. And in this common calling this morning, I want to show you seven things that we have in common as children of God, okay? Again, I'm talking to the church. I'm talking to those who have trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior. These seven common things are true of every single believer who names the name of Jesus. Paul begins, he says, um, oh, I thought you were going to go to that verse. Go to verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner Worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Walk in a manner. That means live your life in a way that is worthy. The word worthy in the Greek is an interesting word. It is a picture of a scale with two um, weights on the, each side of it. Those weights correspond to one another where it's perfectly balanced. He says we're to live in our life in such a way that our lives are balanced. In other words, we are to have our beliefs are to match our behavior. They are to be balanced. Our lips are to match our lifestyle. They are to be balanced. Our walk is to match our talk. We are to live in a way that's balanced to what we have been called to. What have we been called to? Into a relationship with Christ. He's talking about the upward call of, uh, uh, of God in Christ Jesus. It's salvation. So when it comes to salvation, there are seven things. And we find these all through the pages of Ephesians, the same letter. So here's what I want to do. I want to show you these seven areas of common calling for us in salvation. We all have these in common. They all flow from Ephesians chapters 1 and 2. Here's the first one, okay? We all were ruined by sin. Without exception, every one of us, our lives were controlled by sin. The way Paul puts it in, in, in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He goes on. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Every single one of us is born spiritually dead because of sin. We are sinners by nature and we are sinners by choice. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. And within every human heart, there is the DNA for sin. And every one of us, without exception are controlled by sin apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to know this. Every single person in this room was born a sinner. You might as well just turn to the person next to you and say, you are one big sinner. Because the reality is, 
We are all born in that. I didn't mean for y'all to take that much joy in doing that, okay? (laughs) But we're all born that way. You can go to the nursery and the cutest little babies. We've got some in this room that you're holding. Oh, they're precious. They look so wonderful in their little dresses. They look good in their little outfits. But every one of them is a little rebel and a potential barbarian (laughs) by nature. You could go to our nurseries and you'll see every single one. No one ever teaches these children to throw a temper tantrum. No one ever teaches them to say no. It is within them and every single one of us has this sinful nature. Well, maybe with the exception of these two. These are my grandson, Hudson and Hadley. That's a little Joe Baker all the way. That's a little Leslie or to go all the way. But you know, I've spent time with them and I have seen the wretchedness of their ways. <laughs> Why? We're all ruined by sin. Let me tell you something that this would remind us of. Be very careful about your self-righteousness towards other people. Be very careful about pointing your finger in a way people don't live or don't approve or don't receive your approval. Because the reality is this, every single one of us without exception is born with that sinful nature separated from God. We're all in the same boat and that boat is sinking. And you know what we try to do? We try to rearrange our lives to cover for that sinking boat. It's kind of like being on the deck of the Titanic. Instead of jumping off, you're out there rearranging the furniture. But it's going down. And every single one of us, without exception, finds ourselves in that boat. But here's the great news. The great news is this. There must always be the backdrop of bad news before you can receive the great news. And the great news is what God brings to us in the midst of our brokenness and our sinfulness. Here's the second thing all believers have in common. We all have regeneration through grace. We all have regeneration through grace. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Paul keeps going. And I love these first two words. You should circle these. But God is the greatest adversative in the New Testament. But God, even though we were dead. But God, even though we were separated. But God, even though we were destined to a, an eternity separated from him. But God, being rich in mercy. Because of the grace with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Because of the grace of a loving God, he regenerates our hearts. He doesn't renew our heart. He doesn't restructure our heart. He doesn't rebuild our heart. You know what he does? He gives us a new heart. Because our hearts were dead and darkened with sin. But when I come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, when I come to understand who he is, when I submit my life to him by faith, God regenerates me. He gives me a brand new heart, not an old heart. And everything is brand new. And it's not because of anything I've done. It's because of his grace alone. Grace is unmerited favor. It's what I don't deserve. Peter says the same thing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
Titus tells us the same thing. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration with the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Every single person who's in Christ has been regenerated by the mercy and the grace of God. I want, to t- I want you to hear something here. Not one of us will stand in heaven patting ourselves on the back and saying, wow, I did really good to get here. Not one of us. Because not one of us deserves heaven. But it's simply the amazing grace of God through Christ our Lord. You know what that tells me? Every person that's in the body of Christ is where we are by grace only. I hear people say sometimes, oh, if it wasn't for the grace of God, I would be like them. No, 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 no. If it wasn't for the grace of God, you are them. Because it's the grace of God that transforms our thinking, our lives. And when we surrender our lives to, to, to the Father, there is regeneration. There's a new heart. And every person in Christ has a regenerated heart. Here's a third thing we need to see. We all have relationship through adoption. Every one of us. You see, not only are we all ruined because of sin, but we all have regeneration through grace. We have a relationship through adoption. And this is how Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. It is God's intention not only that he would give us a new heart, but listen to this. It is God's intention that he would invite us into his family. That we would be adopted as sons and daughters of the king of the universe. The apostle Paul writes this in Romans chapter 8. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We have a common father, the creator of the universe. He is our daddy. And we have been adopted as sons and daughters. Therefore, we are what? Brothers and sisters together. He goes on in chapter 2, verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Here's what we all have in common. The Lord Jesus is the only begotten of the Father. The Lord Jesus is the only Son of God. Every one of us are adopted because of his grace. It could have been one thing for God just to forgive us, but he went way further than that. He adopted us into his family, and you and I are brothers and sisters in Christ. Somebody might ask, why is it that the church fights so much? It's because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. When I was growing up, I have two brothers and two sisters. And my youngest sister, Faye, we used to pick on her all the time. And we'd all gather together and we'd all say, you know, you're not really of this family. The mailman dropped you off. And we would just pick on her. We were so hard on Faye. And she would cry and cry and cry. And the truth is, we tried to make her to feel that she was second class. And because every one of us is adopted into the family of God, there is never any room for spiritual elitism in the body of Christ. 
We're all equally adopted as the children of God. And we're to walk as a family. That means sometimes we get frustrated with each other. Sometimes we can share our opinions with each other. But you know what a family doesn't do? A healthy family doesn't just bail on one another. We walk through the process of being a family. And we have a father who is our God. Number four, we all have redemption through Christ's blood. We all have redemption through Christ's blood. Now, this is a big word. And the word redemption simply means to buy back, to purchase. When I was growing up, we had a little pack-a-sack. It was a convenience store down the street from our house. And we would always get on our bikes and we'd ride to the pack-a-sack store. And one of the things we loved to buy were ICs. How many of you remember the old ICs, huh? Remember that? My wife still to this day, we'll drive around. She said, oh, I just want a Coke icy." And some of you have probably never had an icy. But I've got two images of the cups on this thing. The one on the left is the old icy cup. This was the era in which I grew up in. This is how the polar bear looked. He looked a little goofy, you know. But then the new icy cup is more modernized, and you've got this cooler-looking polar bear. He's got a little bit more swag to him. But the, he, it's just a cooler-looking cup and everything. Basically the same. But the difference between the old cup and the new cup was something that was attached to the old cup many years ago. Many of you may remember this. The old cup had the little diamond-shaped proof-of-purchase seal on it. Now, you you would get different numbers of diamond shapes on the cup depending on the size of the cup. If you bought a small one, you got one diamond. If you bought a medium, you got two diamonds. If you bought a large, you got three diamonds. Now, when you go to the convenience store with your ICs, you can also get a catalog. You know what the catalog was for? The catalog was to redeem toys. And if you got enough of these proof of purchase seals, you can mail them in and you would get some little trinket in the mail. And what you would do is redeem that toy for the proof of purchase seals. Now, I can remember doing that. I I probably spent 20 bucks on ICs to get a $1 toy. But it was something cool about redeeming something and it being yours. When we talk about that we are redeemed, that we have redemption through Christ's blood, we were purchased at a price. And what were we purchased by? We were purchased by the blood of Jesus himself. Probably one of the most gruesome pictures of the crucifixion that I've ever seen, but probably the most realistic That every single child of God has been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. And it is through his blood that God bought us back. Now, could God have just winked at our sin and said, you know what? I'm just by grace going to receive you into my family. Could God have just said, oh, don't worry about the sin? No, because God is a righteous judge and and the penalty requires righteousness, somebody had to die. And what did God do? He sent his own son to die for you and me. Every child of God is purchased by the blood of the son of God. And let me say this, grace is free. But it is never cheap because it costs Jesus his life. 
And every single one of us stand before God forgiven because of what Jesus has done for us. He says this, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. In Colossians, Paul writes, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And it's through the blood of Jesus Christ that you and I have forgiveness. Now, if you and I have been forgiven by the priceless blood of Jesus Christ, how unconscionable is it that we not forgive one another? You and I, who have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, which is costly among all things. We don't deserve that forgiveness. We don't deserve that grace. But he has demonstrated this grace to us through his son. Who are we to not forgive one another? There is nothing spiritually more incomprehensible than refusing to forgive when we have received forgiveness. Oh, but you don't know what that person said about me. You don't know what she did. You don't know how he mistreated me. Did it ever bring you to the cross? But your sin and my sin did for Jesus. And his very words on the cross were, Father, get even with them. Father, pay them back. Father, may your judgment fall. Father, what? Forgive. So if we're going to walk in unity, you see, we need to understand that we have been forgiven, so we forgive. Fifthly, we all have revelation of his will. As Paul goes on in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verses 8 through 10, he says this, which he lavished upon us his grace in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Let me tell you what God did. Not only did he regenerate us and put us in a relationship with him and redeem us, but he gave us revelation on how to live. God did not save us and leave us in a mental, intellectual, and emotional vacuum. He did not. When God saved us, church, he gave us the counsel of his will. He gave us his word, objective truth on which we should live by. And his word becomes that, that, that source, that filter for our life and everything we think. Everything we do, everything we say, every action that we take should be filtered in the truth of God's word. And when I walk with the revelation of God's word, every single one of us, without exception, have truth. Now, we might differ in our convictions in some part of God's word, and that's okay. 
But we are to live with a biblical worldview in mind and what God says on how the church is to work and operate in the world. If anything is to be jettisoned, it is to be the mores of our culture. It is to be the constant changing definitions of our culture. We are to be people of the book. We are to be people of truth. And we are to walk according to the will of God as we live in this world. That means that there's sometimes that we may disagree. But in the essentials, we walk in unity. and the non-essentials, we walk in liberty. But in all things, we walk in charity. And this we have in common. We have the word of God. We understand that God's word gives us specific instruction for the general will of God. But he also gives us instruction for those specific wills in our own life. Paul writes this in Romans. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You know what renews your mind? There's only one thing that renews the mind, and that's the word of God. And as we walk according to that testing, we can discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable. You want to know why many people don't know what the specific will of God is for their life? It's because they're not walking in the daily general will of how they are to live. And when we walk in the general will of God, we encourage one another to do the same. Sixthly, here's another thing we have in common. We have all riches through an inheritance. We have all riches through an inheritance. We are joint heirs together in the many blessings of God. Ephesians 1.11, he says this, In him, meaning Jesus, we, notice this plural, have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his will. We are joint heirs together with Jesus. Titus chapter 3, verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And then Ephesians chapter 1, 3, blessed being the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places. Peter goes on to say that you have everything you need for life and for godliness. We are rich people. Now, we may vary in the finances that we have here among ourselves, but when it comes to the eternal blessings and the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ Jesus, it makes the richest man in the world look like a pauper because we are joint heirs with Christ. Lastly, we all have reassurance through the Holy Spirit. We all have reassurance through the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, Paul finishes up this section. He says, in him, again, Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance and we acquire, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Every child of God has the Holy Spirit living within him or her. And the Holy Spirit is a seal. What is a seal? A seal was a sign of authentication, of ownership. When a person in this day sealed an envelope with this, this wax stamp, it signified that this belonged to the person who is sending it. And so the Holy Spirit seals us with his presence to remind us in the world that we belong to Jesus Christ. We are here, his and there are times when you and I might question our own hearts. There are times when we might even question our own salvation. 
But if you're genuinely saved, the Holy Spirit who lives within you will remind you that you are His. But it's also a guarantee. A guarantee. It's a, it's a pledge. It's a down payment. The Holy Spirit in the child of God is the first installment towards eternity. He is the down payment for your eternal security. And God puts Him in you to signify that you are eternally secure in Christ Jesus. And His presence in you is the first installment towards eternity. It's like if you go and you buy a car and you put a down payment, it becomes the first installment to the cost for that automobile. Every single child of God has the Spirit of God living in him or in her. And he is the one who demonstrates that we belong to him. He is the one who brings the unity to the body of Christ. He is the one who makes us one. These are the seven things that we all have in common. We have regeneration through His grace. We have relationship and adoption. We have redemption through His blood. We have revelation through His Word. We have the riches of the blessings of Christ. And we have the reassurance that we belong to Him and to one another. That's what we have in common. So how does this work out in our life? You might say, wow, that's wonderful. How does this play out in me? Let me give you some practical steps, some takeaways. Here they are. Number one, because we have fallen short of God's glory, we have no room for self-righteousness. None. It's simply by His grace. Secondly, because we have all experienced the grace of God, we must extend grace to others. One another within the body of Christ and those without, outside of the body of Christ. Because we have all been adopted into God's family, there must be no spiritual pride. There can be no spiritual elitism in the body of Christ. We are all on the same plane. The, 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 the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We're all equal because of grace. We're one family. Because we have been forgiven by Jesus, we must stand ready to forgive others. Forgiveness is a choice. If you choose not to forgive someone because of their hurt, you're saying the hurt that they have inflicted on you is far greater than the hurt that your sin has afflicted on the Lord Jesus. Doesn't make sense, does it? We must walk in forgiveness. Because we have all been given revelation to God's will, we must encourage one another. Encourage one another in the Word of God. As we let the Word of God be the source of objective truth in our lives as we live by that standard and none other. Because we are heirs together of the grace of life, we must not treat others as second-class citizens in the kingdom. doesn't matter your past. doesn't matter your failure. Sure, that person may have gone through addiction. That person may have gone through divorce. That person may have gone through a moral failure in their life. But through the blood of Jesus Christ, they are restored. And there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom. None. 
Lastly, because we have all reassurance through the Holy Spirit that we belong to God, we must display His ownership in our lives. Let the world see that we're His. Let the world hear of the message of the gospel. And as we walk as one together in these seven things that unite us, all the other things begin to fall by the wayside and we walk in this oneness. If you're here this morning and you've never considered the claims of Jesus before, I would encourage you to investigate that. If you're watching online maybe and you've never heard this or maybe you've never given your life to Christ, God is speaking to you today that he has paved the way for your forgiveness and your reconciliation with him and your reconciliation with others. In church, we can walk in this truth because this is who God says we are. This is who we are. We are one. I'm going to close this in a prayer, then I'm going to ask you to stand, and we're going to close out with one song together before you leave. Okay? Matter of fact, stand with me now. Stand with me now as I pray. Father, we thank you for the things that make us one. We thank you, Father, that these are the things that we have in common as the body of Christ. And Father, I pray for those who may be without Christ today that they would know that Jesus loves them so much that he died for them. It is through his blood that he desires to redeem them. And Father, I pray that you would allow your Holy Spirit to work within their lives, to come to the place of absolute surrender and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. He's the only one who can forgive. He's the only one who can cleanse us of our sin and make us right with you. Father, as we walk in this truth, may you remind us of who we are. And Father, may we rest in what you say about who we are. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us on the Scotts Hill Podcast. Thank you to those who continue to give generously to this ministry. If you want more information about Scotts Hill or want to learn more about Jesus, go to scottshill.org slash next steps. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to subscribe to get notifications of future episodes. You can also share it with your friends via text message or take a screenshot and post it to your social media stories. Be sure to tag us at Scotts Hill. Thanks so much for listening. Till next time.